This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at Media Week magazine and our new online home, mediaweek.com.au. We chat weekly with people in all sectors of the media and more podcasts just like this can be found at mediaweek.com.au or on iTunes. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're back inside News Corp. Haven't been here for a little while. I'm with um, Crudy Joshi from Media Week. We're joined by Edwina McCann, Editor-in-Chief of Vogue Australia. We're going to be talking a little bit about their special, um, the special editor they've got for their April edition, but we're going to also then get into talk about magazines and a few other things before we let Edwina go on a rooster break. But to start off, Crudy, I know you've got something sort of bugs you a little bit that you, you want to ask to start off, right? Yes, so this will be my amateur question to you. Now, when I read about, you know, guest editors, I'm just wondering, do they take over everything that an editor does? In the case of Mario Testino, they take over about 80 or 90% of what you do, but Mario Testino has a company behind him which employs over 100 people called Mario Testino Plus. So he is very well positioned to be able to actually take over a lot of the aspects that the magazine normally would produce themselves, such as art direction, for example. However, all the feature commissioning, all the sub-editing, the approvals obviously still go um, through me. However, there was a little question about the copulating kangaroos at the (laughs) end, (laughs) where I was given um, creative veto, you might say, but his story behind choosing that image was so wonderful that I thought, you know what, we might let that stay. So is it a relaxing week for you then? Yes and no, because because I think when um, when you know the world's best fashion photographer turns up with eighteen of his staff and you know various other freelancers in tow and the biggest model in the world, etc., and you are still responsible through your office um, in terms of getting all the clothes, for example, shipped to Australia. So every look that was photographed in the magazine was requested by our market editors, who are our in-house staff. Um, and obviously our production team, who normally work on our shoots, worked in close association with Mario's team. So we still had to work, you know, giving them direction on all the locations. I called in a friend for um, providing the speedboat that you'll see in one of the shoots in the magazine. So there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of favours pulled in as well to make sure that he had access to the best of the best in terms of um, backgrounds to photograph in Sydney. That clears up that confusion then. <laughs> well, it's fascinating to hear about so Mario's company, if you like. Um, the, I guess he runs some photographers in there too, does he? That, so we can sort of take on photographic jobs for other people as well and where it's not always him with the show. He, no, all the images that you see published, he's actually photographed, but yes, he does have people who take behind-the-scenes imagery and specifically um, vision, so video. He, when he comes, he took over our Instagram, for example, the weekend prior to the issue going on sale, so last weekend. Um, those images were shot specifically by Testino, but they were often um, additional images that never made the cut into the magazine that he really loved. Then there were a few other images as part of that Instagram takeover, which was shot by his offsiders, usually his assistants, who I might add are very good-looking men as well. They're very well cast. Best-looking photographic assistants yeah. I've ever seen. Um, and they were shot by his assistants. And that's him on the job, him, him you know, shooting the cover, etc. I must agree. I saw one of the pics of one of his assistants. I was like, damn, that's good-looking guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's actually been the funniest thing today. We've just put the May issue to bed. And I keep saying to all the staff, where have all the good-looking men gone? From the pages of Vogue. <laughs> so, and just tell us about his deal with Condé Nast. Does he sort of have an exclusive there, or do you get first dibs on him, then he can work elsewhere? What's the? Do you, what do you know about that? 
So in terms of publishing, yes, he does have an exclusive deal um, with Condé Nast, or at least a preference deal with Condé Nast. So he shoots regular covers for British Vogue and American Vogue. He actually famously started his career in the offices of British Vogue, where he met the um, creative director, Lucinda Chambers, who is still there today, who became a huge backer of him very early. Um, he spent a lot of time in the fashion office, and I credit those days with actually giving him an insight into what it took to be um, a magazine editor, which is essentially what he's managed to pull off with this issue. Um, so he works for American and British Vogue shooting covers. He shoots Vanity Fair, which is also a Condé Nast title. So he does um, a lot of their big celebrity shoots. Uh, and then he pretty much only shoots special editions for Vogue's and then for um, big cosmetics or fashion contracts. So he shoots for Chanel, he shoots for Burberry, most of the big, brand, big brands you can imagine. Um, one of the latest contracts he's done that's that's probably quite new and different is working with Huawei, which is a very big um, Chinese tech company, which you're probably aware of. Um, and his company really get behind that. So they produce everything from the TVC, as he also did for Lancome, for example. He directed the TVC as well, um, through to the behind-the-scenes imagery, again, through to the imagery you see in that advertisement. You mentioned Huawei. That he, if you look closely in the issue, there's some people are wearing their watches. So it was um, a bit of um, he was able to sort of sink that in. The um, tell me a little bit about so to be him turning up with all these people. There'd be a fair bit of expense involved in that. It's a big issue of Vogue. Is it maybe bigger than your normal April? It's just under three hundred pages. Nearly half of them ad pages. Were you able to sell off to the Mario Testino factor, if you like? One of the best things about this issue is it's actually proven to me that if you have a great idea and if you're willing to invest in content and a, and a big idea, that the advertisers will come in print. Um, we obviously have a very loyal following with luxuries. A lot of those luxury brands actually up their spend in this particular issue. We also had a lot of new clients um, and clients you know, such as Huawei who wanted to be associated with the issue because of Testino's involvement. However, we also have a really big domain campaign. And as we all know, Katie Page and the domain brand in particular have been great supporters of magazines. So we had a lot of non-core core and even new clients who put more money, invested more money into this magazine because they knew it would be collectible and people would keep it forever. Um, and really, we almost doubled. We came very close to doubling our revenue target for the month. So it's a very, a very big win. Um, it was something where... To produce this, we really had to create a separate P&L around this magazine, and I'm very proud to say that, you know, with the success of the Vogue brand across all platforms, that I have support in Newslife Media from our CEO, Nicole Sheffield, my publisher, Nick Smith, that when you have a big idea, if you can build a P&L around it, you know, if you think you can get the investment behind you and, and deliver a return, that they're willing to invest in the long-term prestige as well of the title and take those risks. Clearly, in this risk, it's paid, with this risk, it's paid off um, in terms of, of revenue. Um, but you know, it's also paid off more importantly in terms of the prestige of the Vogue Australia brand globally and our place within the Condé Nast family. I guess that's uh, quite exciting, isn't it? Because you obviously can't overdo it, but at the same time, it lets you start thinking up some, gee whiz, what other special editions could we do and get some of this return? Um, and it's, I mean, the. 
145, 150, whatever it is, ad pages, a lot of revenue there. But gee, was I was having a lazy read through the um, the Vogue Media Kit last night, you know, bedtime reading, and that's pretty interesting to read that and then go and read the magazine because you realise the powerful, you know, economic force at work here that, gee whiz, the money that you can write off, you know, lots of different things in addition to just the old traditional page print advertising. Absolutely. I mean, the, the question for us is really starting to be about, about yield. I mean, the, the combination of factors that we have now to sell to or to present to our advertisers in terms of a marketing solution across the Vogue brand exclusively or across our style category, which is GQ, Vogue and Bureau, both online and print, I think is you know, second to none in the country. It is very much about... Um, people understanding that there is inherent value in the yield in a, in a print advertisement still and it does live on forever and on people's coffee tables. It's very much about the positioning of a brand. Fortunately, Luxury have always invested a lot into their advertising campaigns and are continuing to see the value in, the, in, in print. But at Vogue, we're very lucky because we can build you know, bigger, I guess, contracts with those luxury advertisers and offer them true value online with that audience and even through through social media now as well. Do you find it that more people are willing to advertise in print over digital? We've actually... It works both ways for us. So we have... You know, I, I, without being patronising, we've held the hands of many of our luxury advertisers as they venture into digital for the first time. That sounds almost old-fashioned to me now, but it has happened over the past three years. And then we've also, interestingly, worked with um, clients who want to advertise 100% digital with us and encourage them to continue to advertise in print. And I guess if I were talking, for example, about a luxury fragrance, now if you're launching a new luxury fragrance and you want consumers to remember the name of it you know you the print advertising factor is still really relevant aside from a tvc that's the moment where a woman has invested her money she's potentially sitting on the beach with the with the magazine or sitting in the bath and i you know i have said you know the bath has always presented a bit of a problem for the ipad so people still <laughs> love that printed magazine for that reason but that's when she's really going to study the ad and take in that name and remember the name of the fragrance and be able to walk in to you know the floor of david jones or myra and ask for that that fragrance by name. So whereas, for example, if you were just reminding people that that fragrance was on the counter, a digital campaign would do that incredibly effectively. And obviously a digital campaign can push the consumer through to the point of purchase in a way print can't, but the print has often anchored you know, their, their memory of what that fragrance is called and the fact that it's new and the fact that they want it. So will you be looking to do more of these guest edited editions this year? Well, off the back of this, I'm very proud to say that um, Mario Testino has agreed to shoot a very high-profile um, Australian for kind of Australian, for um, a future cover. I can't say who that is. It's very top secret um, later this year, and I think that is going to be huge for, for Vogue. Um, we also have some really great talent lined up for covers. Taylor Swift was incredibly successful for us last year, and I feel that um, there are other like musicians whom we would very much like to feature um, in Vogue and even reinvent for the Vogue Australia Reader. So we will be focused on, on you know, some of those bigger projects because 
make no mistake, um, you know, Taylor Swift doesn't live in Australia, so mm. everybody's got to fly to Taylor Swift, <laughs> as do the couture clothes that have got to come from Paris. Um, so, you know, we, are, we continue to invest a lot in those covers. Um, another guest, guest editorship, it's going to be hard to better Mario because he really is the real deal. He's a great editor. He understands the traditions of great magazine publishing. He understands pace. He understands the way to balance a book between, with its pagination between studio shoots, location shoots, you know, narratives that tell the reader a story mixed with straight great fashion. It would be hard to better that. But we definitely are on the lookout and we do have some offers out there. So we're hoping people will see this and want to do it too. The, um, go, I mean, I'll state the obvious, I'm obviously not in your target market, but I found a really interesting addition to read, and KJ, you like your, your luxury brands, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts too, maybe, but it's, to me, it, it sort of it puzzled me a little bit, the issue when I first got it, but then when I went back and again and had a second look, it started to make sense, and some really interesting stuff, but I'm guessing the editorial mix might be different to what you might do normally, would that be right? Absolutely. So um, two years ago, we started with a conversation where I literally walked up to Mario Testino at a Louis Vuitton show and said, hi, I'm the editor of Australian Vogue and I would love you to shoot an issue of Australian Vogue. And he grabbed my hand and said, grabbed his, um, his uh, partner, Jan, and said, oh, this is the editor of Australian Vogue. I want to go to Australia. Please get mm -hmm. her contact. So it all sort of started there. And then before he arrived in the country, we had these fascinating conversations where I realised... You know, and I would say Anna Winter is very similar in this respect. They've met a lot of Australian talent over the years. They've shot a lot. In his case, he's photographed many famous Australians, obviously from the Nicole Kidmans, so you see many of them, you know, in the issue, met the likes of Baz Luhrmann's and, and Catherine Martin's and discovered the likes of model Catherine McNeil. And he's formed views and opinions about Australia without ever having been here. And he's a very deep thinker, and he really enjoys using the creative journey to, um, I guess, get people to look at themselves in a more introspective way. Um, he's very interested in Indigenous culture, and a lot of that goes back to his Peruvian culture. But he's also very interested in looking at countries that see themselves on the outside looking in, especially to the high fashion world. So he, in that first conversation, said to me, you know... I really am interested in this Australian male. I don't understand how there are the Crocodile Dundees, and obviously he's met the Crocodile Dundees, and he's met the Russell Crows, and then, you know, cut to he's met the Hemsworths, and then recently he's met the Stenmarks, and this evolution of the Australian male and how different he finds these urban young Australian males, like Cody, for example, the, the model, who he's meeting today how different their personas are from the traditional Crocodile Dundee version of, you know, the more ochre Australian male. And he wanted to explore that. Um, he also had many views about Australian eccentricity and said that we have some of the great eccentrics of the world, which we do, and say Baz Luhrmann and Catherine Martin, but why he felt like they always seemed to have to go overseas to feel truly accepted, why such an open and accepting society was unable to embrace their own eccentricity at home. And whilst and why we kind of and I guess that was a bit of a cultural cringe factor as well. So he had really um, you know deep thoughts about our culture, and I felt very perceptive ideas. Like uh, I actually the first conversation I came in and said to the staff, so these so these are his ideas, and and I haven't really had a conversation with him before this, so I don't know where all of this is coming from. Um, so he really, he started there and then the shoot itself was, or all the shoots, and it was, 
you know, it's almost a two-week shoot, which is huge for us. Normally, you know, normally an issue is shot in the equivalent of four days in today's world. Back in the day in the 70s and 80s, they used to be two-week shoots. Um, but he, you know, that then becomes, and an, uh, I guess, a, a process of discovery when he's here and the more people he meets and he comes up with more ideas as he goes. But the initial concepts he wanted to explore through his work are true, to the, are true and, I, I think, evident in the magazine we've produced today. You've got some big names uh, in terms of models like the Stan Mark brothers. Now, how hard is it to, you know, organise and, you know, settle their schedules? And I see you just, you know, making a face. I really need to know. I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> like, I mean, I've joked so many times that I really should have been the editor of a food magazine because you can cook three different chocolate cakes and then just decide which picture you like on the cover. And I'm not suggesting that is simple either. But getting said supermodel in same place as said supermodel men with the right dress, with the right jewellery and the right location, with sunny weather, with the right photographer and the right hair and makeup and everything is a logistical nightmare. And in this case... He wanted to shoot so much great talent, but he was very clear about the fact that he had shot the biggest Australian celebrities, and you see them in his portfolio of work, which is also in the issue, and he said that he thought that would be expected if he just came out and shot one of our biggest celebrities on the cover, that people had seen Mario Testino do that, and he wanted this to be a mix of, you know, huge fashion stars like Lara Stone, who hadn't really, you know, hadn't been to Australia before, but also you know, Australian talent whom people internationally would then go on and discover, i.e. he would launch somebody, you know, some people's, you know, yeah. some models' careers in this issue. But nevertheless, getting the likes of Jess Hart and the Stemarks and everybody else in one place at one time was a nightmare. And I must honestly say, thanks to Qantas, it happened. Without them and our flying kangaroo, I just simply don't think the whole thing could have come off. You, you must use that Vogue brand a lot to your own benefit, I guess, to try and do deals, cut deals, because I guess it would be no surprise to most people that magazine budgets aren't brilliant, especially these days, are they? Everybody's looking to do things as, as cheaply as they can, and that must help you a lot. How hands-on are you with that sort of planning out an issue financially, or can you just give someone a creative brief and tell them to work out how to do it? No, we're very... I mean, when it, when it came to finding, you know, the money, um, the commercial money to, to do this and, you know, Destination New South Wales, hence the Sydney location, um, really did come on board to help us um, underwrite this project. Without their support, it just simply wouldn't have happened. Um, so, you know, they saw the unique opportunity in tourism and, I, you know, I've said it, you know, to them that, you know, the, the behind-the-scenes video, were that to be a TVC, that is multi, multi, multi millions of dollars worth of content that's promoting the city of Sydney. I would probably argue more like a $40 million <laughs> budget. So I guess when we, when we look to work with partners, we try to work out, well, what is our value? What, what can we give them? And I always try to start there. What, what are we really offering here and what is the value for this partner? And then, obviously, there are certain asks that allow us to make these projects possible. Um, where I think it is, it is really dangerous is straight out selling fashion shoots to brands. I think that is a, it's wrong and it's yeah. not what we do and we don't go down that path. But certainly having partnerships that are aligned with both people's strategic you know, outc- you know, objectives is certainly the way to get things done, especially with travel. Half the problems with shooting in Sydney, and we had the same problem when we took Nicole Kidman to Uluru, and it was a very special project. It was really about 
you know, the anniversary of the handing back of, of that land to the traditional owners and it was wonderful that she wanted to take her daughters there and they participated in, you know, an incredible women's ceremony. But the logistics of getting everybody there, really 90% of the, well, probably not 90%, but sometimes 40 or 50% of the expense is in travel yeah. because Australia is so far away. Yeah. Well, you like going to exotic places, don't you? <laughs> you sort of... You sort of boring. Like Sydney's eastern suburbs. No, but you answered part of my question, I guess. I was saying, oh, look, it is, because I'm a Victorian stuck in Sydney, so I can't earn a living in Victoria. So I do notice Sydney a lot more, maybe. But, but I guess, so there was a part of it, part of a financial deal. And I guess time, too. He probably didn't have time to go and travel around Australia. Is that... Yeah, so it, it, this was his first trip to Australia, and he very much... I mean, he calls himself an urban tourist. He very much wanted to come to Sydney. Um, so it was, you know, with the financial deal and with his time restraints and just, I guess, what we were able to do with our people on the ground as well, we're, we're set up in Sydney. However, having said that, you know, he um, he did go out to Walden Valley. He's now obsessed with the outback. <laughs> I'd be very happy for Tourism Australia, all the, all the Victorians, to come and help us do more, I think... He's, the fascinating thing is I've had so many photographers tell me that they can't shoot in the midday sun in Australia. One of the most interesting things about the Australian environment to shoot fashion photography or any photography in is our incredible light. It is like nowhere else in the world. Mario's approach to it was to go to the island, which is a bar on Sydney Harbour, and make it a studio and shoot Lara Stone in black and white at midday. So he actually used our midday sun as probably some of the greatest lighting I've seen in a studio shoot ever. So he adapted to the natural environment to get the most out of it. So I actually think take him to the centre of Australia, take him around Melbourne, what you would get is an astonishingly different look at a different environment. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you want to ask about this issue? Then I thought we might just get on to sort of Vogue in general and, and the magazines. Yeah. Um, no, I'm pretty satisfied with the, you know, issue because I really liked it. I was having a flip through it and it was just the amount of pictures. It's just very bright and I really enjoyed that. But you mentioned earlier Anna Wintour. Now, a lot of people know her. Vogue is associated with her. She kind of represents the brand. Um, have you ever met her and what, what is she like? Um, yes, I have. And she is an incredibly intelligent woman. Obviously, she's an incredible um, you know, brand ambassador for the Vogue brand. She, and the, one of the reasons I think I admire her most is that she has posi uh, positioned the influence of the Vogue brand well beyond just being a magazine. You know, Vogue stands for so much more. It touches everything. It touches American politics. It, you know, it's, it, it touches, you know, obviously it's always been a documentary of popular culture, but it also often raises a lot of controversy around those areas, which is, you know, interesting, I suppose, for a brand like Vogue that's essentially, you know, I guess, um, rooted in fashion. Um, and, and I think when you take somebody who has a great brain like Anna and you, and you give her the... She's created the platform, I would say, at Vogue, and you get the intelligent reading that, you know, I, I enjoy in that magazine, it's a really... I guess it's a great role model, you know, for all Vogue editors. I think she's... And, and I, you know, I think she's generous in that way. I think that she cares about the Vogue brand globally. And I think she, you know, she genuinely cares about the quality of Australian Vogue. That's certainly, you know, what she indicated to me when I first took over the job and went and went to see her. So, you know, I hope when she receives this issue, she thinks we've done a good job. So meeting her was a part of your orientation? Yeah, a part, that actually, that I requested, but, but yes, yeah. And has she got a bit of a, more of a 
I don't know, corporate global role now than just purely focusing on um, Vogue? She has a, a more of a, I guess, more editorial director role, but within the American company. So the way Condé Nast is structured is the American company is, is separate to the international company, which of course we sit under, um, but both are run by, by new houses. So it's, it's very much still a family company. Um, guided by the same principles, and Anna, you know, is an editorial director and, and very influential with the Vogue brand in the US, and so therefore, effectively globally. Yeah, because this sits a little bit under the UK. Is that your sort of head office? That yes. yeah. Yeah, our head office is London, yeah. um, but through Hong Kong. So um, obviously, Hong Kong, Asia Pacific, then you know, answers to the chairman, Jonathan Newhouse, in London. Yeah. Um, just, you know, quickly before we let you go, a few things we'll, we'll run through. So magazines generally, I mean, we had a place where the special interest magazines and you're at a good place, News Life Media, I guess they've got very, you know, sharp focus magazines. They're not really generalist titles. Is that the future of the, the, um, the medium, do you think? Very much so. I believe um, it is all about brand and that if you have a very clearly defined niche and you're very good at it, and you're number one, or the market leader, you will survive. And there is absolutely still a desire for, especially an entry point luxury good like Vogue, you know, to exist, people still want the inherent value of a, of a print product. So definitely I think that is the future. But you need to be very clear about exactly what you are for your, for your magazine readers. And then you need to have a very clearly defined, you know, properly funded um, budget across all other platforms and really think strategically every year about reinventing yourself on different platforms to speak to you know, different audiences in a different way, but keep it all still true to the brand. The, um, and the, the other platforms, of course, are all digital. You're on everything. You've got massive social media numbers on every platform, and I'm sure you'll be on a few they haven't invented yet. But um, is there your circ numbers are really stable for that, the, the print edition. Is there much um, evidence that some of those digital readers live in that space? Maybe when they get to a certain age, they might jump into print and become customers there as well? The interesting work for us will be around, obviously, our sub-strategy, our subscribers, and really growing that. And traditionally, many publishers have had their subscribers owned by third parties, but being able to access, obviously, with their permission, that data and then overlay people who are subscribers and are, for example, Facebook friends as well, who might also be engaging with us regularly, even on Snapchat or Instagram, and really creating profiles of, of super users... Because I do, there is, there is definitely a core of super users, and yes, definitely there is. There, without doubt, we can see already from from these sales figures, there is probably an Instagram follower we have, whom is engaging with our Vogue.com.au. Um, content who when we do a special issue like this and she's followed it and she knows about it she wants to collect it because she loves the Vogue brand so yes in that way whether they will whether we'll be able to um, you know get them buying every single month I think we will be able to do that if we're going to deliver that to their doorstep I think I think for that consumer that you know she is used to um, you know, online shopping. She's used to having parcels delivered to her home. And I think the challenge for us and a lot of magazines, but particularly a magazine like Vogue, is to really grow that, um, that loyalty and grow that subscription base so we make it easy for her. So it's just there. There's no question she wants it. It's just getting it to her. So I was well aware that of your presence on, you know, the big three social media platforms being Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. 
Snapchat, not so much. So is that something that you keep in mind to update every day or is that just when you have big events on? No, we're doing that every day. So we've launched that under the Miss Vogue brand um, and it's been incredibly successful for us. And we're actually working commercially with some of our luxury partners. And this is what I mean about you know, working together to work out how that platform might work for both of us but yet be true and remain true to our brand values. Um, it's very much read by I have... A young genius, Zara Wong, working for me. She's just, you know, she helped evolve or basically did evolve the Vogue.com.au brand from a forum-based traffic site into a content-based traffic proposition. It was... And even the way she started reporting was really all of her own making. And really, we, we're, I'm proud to say, we've put that brain to work in an innovative way, I hope, now as well um, on those social media platforms so she can apply that same intelligence and know-how and insights to developing our different social media platforms. So, I mean, Vogue is such a massive brand, has a good pull. Um, so would you be looking to start, say, a Vogue shop where, you know, uh, your readers or users can directly just buy the clothing or fashion items that you do display in your magazine or online or on websites, directly on the website? So we, we have Vogue Online Shopping Night, but obviously that is a special offer, almost a click frenzy, and that does incredibly well for us. So we know that we can drive traffic from a discovery point of view through editorial to retailers, and we know that we can, we can drive sales. Um, Style.com, which is a Condé Nast property, uh, is evolving into being a, effectively a department store online. So it would be debatable whether it was um, necessary for Vogue Australia to set up its own shop. Mm-hmm. However, we have done you know, small sort of experiments um, with Shopify and we've found that we can drive sales. Um, I guess for us, you know, we, we do understand our role and I do believe that sometimes you know, sometimes remaining true to what you are is the most important thing. And what I've learnt already through the evolution and disruption of media is you have to keep reminding yourself what you actually are at heart. And Vogue has always been a point of discovery, whether that was through aspiration or, you know, just through reading about somebody new. So I think you need to remain the discovery point. And I think to become the retailer and get into holding all the stock and or even potentially not doing that, I think there are probably companies that do that better and you'd be better off to do those in partnership or collaboration than to try to do that yourself. Um, But, of course, you know, never say never. I suppose things change all the time. I've got a few quick things to run through, Crudy, before the communications director comes back and throws (laughs) us out. So you you think what you want to end up with, but I've got a few things... um, Grazia, any thoughts about the return of Grazia as a digital brand? Um, Crudy's been hanging out with some of them earlier today, so you might have a question for her yourself. But um, does it surprise you to hear that's coming back, or does it seem to make sense? Look, Grazia, when I worked on it, um, was a very strong brand digitally. Um, you know, it's it's a hard. I, I would I would find it difficult to launch a brand without the network behind you. But I don't understand the full workings of how the, the Grazi model is going to work. We certainly, whilst most of our traffic is driven out of our own social media, so our own community, there is no doubt that having the network supports of, of news.com.au or being able to cross-sell with gq.com.au or bureau.com.au has, in, has value for, for, con, for not, only, well, not, not only consumers, because they can move around our network, but also you know, for our clients. So I think that side of the business would be challenging. Um, 
I actually think the style category is um, is is challenged online. I think that audience and some of it is moving onto social media platforms and only social media platforms. So again, there's an issue around traffic and how you're going to deliver, you know, targets, you know, in terms for your clients. How you're going to deliver campaigns. Um, you're very accountable in digital and you need to be sure that you can deliver every page impression that's agreed on your contract. So, you know, I think that if they've got all their ducks in a line, it's, you know, it's a great brand. I think some of the spelling around it will be tricky. I think that without a host product, tricky as well. But, you know, I'm sure they're very smart and I'm sure they've thought most of those things through. So, you know, we happily welcome another competitor. But to be honest, I've got my eyes more on the likes of Refinery29 in terms of a digital competitor who are coming into our market. Um, Yeah, they do a really good job of some of their commercial integration and, you know, I'm probably more focused on them in terms of seeing them as a a competitor. So there's plenty of competitors out there. Look, that's one out of the four. You look shorter answers, please, Edwina. We yeah. won't get through all this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Um, travel. Tell, tell us that people love hearing about editors going to the, the, the ritzy um, fashion weeks or whatever around the world. Um, tell us about the things you go to every year and what are the things you maybe you go to when you can. Um, so I go to the ready-to-wear collections twice a year, so that's in February, March, and again in September, October for autumn, winter and obviously spring, summer. That's in Paris and Milan. Sometimes I do London or New York as well, but usually um, not all four cities because you're away too long. My fashion director does that. Um, Then I do couture in um, June and July. And nowadays we seem to have a lot of trips for the um, cruise collections and they can be all over the world. Chanel's doing one in Cuba, for example. Fantastic. All right, we're halfway there. Now, just on the back of that one, now, I guess you're always working when you're on these trips, right? So you're virtually, you're in the office, but just not in the office, right? So tell us, what do you pack? What's your tech? Your tech, what do you travel with? You have laptops, you do everything on the iPad. Do you have a camera? Do you use your phone? Just run through that for us. I do everything on a phone. So I've got a big, big screen Samsung phone, which changed my life. And I think that you just do absolutely everything on a phone. Um, those screens are big enough now to be able to see all the pages. It just gets too confusing to have too much technology with you. And I find that things, you know, question Wi-Fi is always still questionable in Paris. I don't know why that is, but it still is. So, yeah, it's just easier to do everything by phone. God, I need to take some travel inspiration from you. I travel with everything. Um, do you post your own social media too when you're on the road? Do you do much of that or do you just send things back to the team and they pump them in? At the moment we just send things back to the team and that's done because we've become very strategic about the time of posting, you know, when it's going to deliver the most engagement. Um, and also, frankly, because I'm a really bad photographer. Um, and I, I know this will sound, it'll make me sound very old-fashioned, but I'm also of the generation where I actually don't like seeing a lot of photos of myself. I really don't, and I don't want to see myself in photos. You've got to that. I know, but I just, well, I, I, guess, I, I just don't. And so I thought about okay, if because I've had a, a private Instagram only because I got on Instagram really, really early, and I started posting photos of my kids, and there's lots of friends on there who don't want to be public. So I've kept that. Private, and now I've had all these lovely Vogue followers who want to fo- follow me 
as Edwina Private, so I've decided, okay, I better set up something called Edwina McCann. And then I was like, well, what would I... Because Instagram's become about curation, right, more than it's become just about reality TV. Like, reality is now Snapchat. So <laughs> got to keep moving. <laughs> I'm not ready to do my own Snapchat either. I think Miss Vogue will do a much better job at it. But um, so I thought, well, what would I do? And I think I would end up posting, you know, things that I love. So I, it would be more about posting things I've seen and places I've been than fo posting photos of myself with famous people, which still simply does not appeal to me. I know yeah. it probably should, but it just doesn't. <laughs> How do you not take selfies with someone you meet? I just... I, is it terrible? I'm just not that... I, I actually think about it and I think my... I do. Like, I think my daughters... I mean, I grew up... My family never took cameras on holidays. I saw probably four photos of myself developed each year of my upbringing, <laughs> maybe. The concept of seeing all these photos and then them being online forever is still, to me... I don't know. I, I mean, I can't even deal with an editor's photo. It's I funny. Could, I could imagine those meetings where people are saying, oh, look at Wayne, you've got all this great access. You should be firing off the photos non-stop. But I get it. Look, I've asked too many questions. I, I told a lie. This is my fifth and final, though, Crudy. Mm -hmm. uh, $8.50. The mag magazine's still a bargain, I reckon, especially this 300-page massive issue. Eight fifty is obviously important to make it uh, affordable, obtainable for a lot of your, your audience. Do you have those sort of meetings with your publisher where they tell you, look, if we put it up 50 cents, we'd make this much more? Or How, how, how um, price-sensitive do you think your market is? I believe our market isn't that price-sensitive and would be very comfortable. You know, certainly when we've had a gift with purchase or something and we've put up the, the price by a dollar, um, it's had absolutely no impact. Sales have, have gone up. I think we could definitely take a price increase. I do understand that, you know, if, especially I guess if we were selling in coffee shops, for example, and it, and it rounded out nicely to ten dollars, it might make. But you know, coffee's so expensive now, it doesn't. So I could understand that sort of argument. But I, you know, I do think we could take a price increase, and I, and frankly, I think it's worth it, um, especially in today's world. If you look at what you're getting for eight dollars fifty, it's pretty great. But, you know, to date, everyone's been very happy with it. The magazine's performing well and covering its own costs and doing well and making money. So I guess for now, you know, we, I guess long, if long term, if you were to do that, you would probably look at reducing the cost of your subs mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Um, so really rewarding your, your subscribers and building that base by, you know, giving them um, cheaper access to Vogue for for being regular consumers. Okay, I see Sharon waiting outside. Okay. I'm just, on, I'm just, I'm just coming to knock. Right, so yeah. I came I came into the News Corp office the other day and I was talking to the editor of GQ, Matthew Drummond. Sorry if I... Names, you? Yeah, uh, <laughs> you see, I'm sorry if I said your name wrong, but um, I asked him a question. What's the pressure like to always dress well knowing, you know, you're the vogue of editor and he's like, you know, constant. He tries to do his best every day. But what's your answer to that question? You know, it gets exhausting and then I've decided that... The thing is, I love clothes. So that side of it is really, really easy. It's more the getting to the gym, getting the kids dropped to school and getting to work, which I know doesn't sound terribly glamorous and I know I'm not meant to do that and my children are meant to go to school in a town car, but they don't. So, you know, I do have a hairdresser that comes to my house twice a week. I do get my nails done in my house Fancy. once a week. Fancy pants. So there's a lot of pressure, I suppose, in that respect because I'm willing to outlay my, my own hard-earned cash to make sure that I look presentable. Um, and then what I've learnt is that you buy good pieces that last 
you spend the money on them because like everything in life, you get what you pay for and then you just rotate um, your wardrobe. That's all from me. Fantastic, yeah. Look, great advice to end on, I'm sure, and it applies to both sexes, as Crudy pointed out, via her chat with Matthew Drummond. Look, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's, um, it's a great issue. Um, you're always uh, very good with your time. And um, have a great Easter. Happy Easter. Thank yeah. you. Happy Easter. <laughs>